Hello, and welcome to the Cowboy Jesus Podcast. This is Steve Hoos Benson, the host of the podcast. It is great to have you today. As I always say, we ride the rodeo of religion and life. Again, I'm downstairs in the church's studio in the basement of Columbine United Church. I'd like to say a huge thank you to Columbine for making this podcast possible, giving me the time and space to record this. And I am not down here by myself today. I have a very special guest with me, and I have to be on my best behavior because (laughs) my boss is here. My boss, D. Cooper, Reverend D. Cooper is here. She's the lead presbyter of the Denver Presbytery. Deed, you and I go way back. I was trying yes, to think do. this afternoon when you were the pastor at Evergreen. Mm-hmm. Were you in the Denver Presbytery even before that? That was my first call into the Denver Presbytery was Church of the Hills, yes. How yes. long ago was it, though? 20 years ago? 25 years ago? Not 25. I think it's closer to, to almost like 12 years ago. 12 years? Yeah, oh, my, why yeah. does it feel like 20 years <laughs> I know, I ago? But I, I do want to correct you. I am not your boss. Oh, no, okay. That's no. good to In know. Fact, you are my boss. Oh, I am. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I always thought that when the buck stopped with you that my buck stopped with you <laughs> it it does I, I hold I hold the responsibility of that but indeed we we believe as Presbyterians in shared ministry right and right. so we don't really have a bishop in fact people joke about the this position as being a bishop with no power and many times that's how it plays out but indeed it's our invitation of reciprocity in ministry. And um, we just have different functions. Yeah, we do. Yeah. So before we dive into that, you know, the reason why I have Dee here is because when uh, she has, she's the lead presbyter of, of the Denver Presbytery. I know that some of my colleagues, our colleagues from the Denver Presbytery, listen to this. So I want to give them a chance to, to hear what Dee has to say. But also, she has a great touch on the PCUSA and the directions that the uh, denomination is going, so I wanted to talk a little bit about that. But more than that, Dee is a fascinating person. She is just a wonderful human being. So let's start there. Dee, tell us a little bit about who you are when you're not a pastor, when you're not a lead presbyter. What do you do? I do lots of things, and I, I almost feel like that's what supports my capacity to do the work I do in ministry, um, whether that's being a pastor or a lead presbyter. Um, I was a therapist for a psychotherapist uh, family. No kidding? You were a psychotherapist before you were? Long before I was a pastor. No kidding. And and those skills carried through in many Uh ways. And then I became a coach through the Hendricks Institute. So I studied with them out in Ojai. Gosh, it's been 10, 12 years ago. And that influences a lot of the work. Coach as in a life coach? Um, It's a life coach relationship, but it's also a systems coach. A systems coach. Wow. I work with a lot of organizations. I've worked with the military and really providing um, what we call restoring resourcefulness, which is another name for resiliency, but really helping people to adapt and adjust when, when things get challenging. So what did you find the call to go into ministry? How did that happen? You know, I, I worked as a um, assistant dean of students, f- and I advised fraternities and sororities at a university in, huh. um, in Wichita, Kansas. Uh-huh. And um, people were coming to me to talk about their spiritual lives. And I really, really wanted to engage them in the, that conversation to ask what what cliffs they were work- walking on and what, what valleys. But because it was a state university, I wasn't allowed to uh-huh. engage in any uh-huh. way. Uh-huh. Now, Steve, if I back up, the call to ministry actually came way back, 
and I would say I was, I was 14 years old, sitting in the back row of the First Christian Church in Perryton, Texas. Wow. And we had a missionary from Africa, and I was a typical kid. I was in the back row. <laughs> and um, you know how you get those God nudges? I yeah. actually said, no. <laughs> <laughs> or did you did you really feel something when you I, were a kid? Yeah, I felt wow. I felt the missionaries talk, even though I was still distracted with all the uh-huh. note passing and stuff. But I was really clear. I thought because my context was Texas, uh-huh. so the top options were you're going to make me a missionary to Africa, oh, which to me was inconceivable at the time, right. or you're going to make me marry a pastor. <laughs> Which I'd also be, was be inconceivable. Like a, be like a pastor's wife? Exactly. So if you couldn't be a pastor, you were going to be a pastor's wife. What other option did you see? Well, there wasn't There wasn't the yeah. option to be a pastor. Yeah. yeah. That was the only Tell option. Tell me again, what was the denomination of the church you said? That was Disciples of Christ. Disciples of Christ. Mm-hmm. So, so I just said no. And um, the joke is now, for me, I mean, this is God's humor, is how many years later, when I go to Africa, it feeds my soul. It's it's considered no a home kidding. point for me. Oh, no and kidding. And I love ministry more than wow. I ever could. Wow. So, yeah. So coming back to that current time in Wichita, when I was I was advising fraternity stories, I was doing parent programs and all huh. kinds of stuff, um, I really got clear. I felt called to ministry and took the steps to go to seminary. And wow. How old were you? In. Um, I was I was a second career, so this was uh, you're asking me dates and numbers. I um about I'm, just about yeah. I was I had gotten a master's in psychology, so it would have been I would say in my mid twenties. Man, so you were really far far down in education career masters, mm-hmm. in working psychology, in, working yeah. in psychology, working mm-hmm. as a therapist, and then you got the god ding. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Where'd you go to seminary? Um, I always put a disclaimer on that because. <laughs> The church I attended in in Wichita was a Presbyterian church, uh-huh. very conservative one. Uh-huh. And so initially the guy who, um, the pastor who I told and shared, I thought he would be excited that I felt called to ministry. He said, I want you to shadow all of the roles in the church. And I thought, this is amazing. They're giving me this opportunity. I went through a year of shadowing each of the roles, came back and said, I really enjoy worship leadership. He said to me, I agree, you're called and there's no question about it. What I didn't know is he and the other pastor had preached regularly that women should not be leading ministry. It was a very conservative church. So I didn't learn that until after I was in seminary and someone who came from that church shared with me. Wow. They offered me a full scholarship. Wow. And I was ready to look at Princeton and Bright Divinity and some other places. And they said, no, your choices are Fuller or Gordon-Conwell. Oh wow! And again, in my in my human, I think I know better. I thought I don't want to live in L.A., even though I ended up serving right. a call out there that I loved. Um, so I went to New England and I went to Gordon Conwell. Wow. And I, I laugh. I was probably one of the few liberals that graduated from Gordon Conwell. <laughs> but the the joy of that, it, I got the best Hebrew and Greek because yeah. when you're a literalist, those yeah. languages mean everything. Yeah. yeah, I just landed on a different side with translation and interpretation. But the other piece of it was I had the opportunity to study through the um, uh, the, the um, Boston Theological Institute Consortium. So I took classes at Harvard Divinity, at um, Episcopal Divinity School, at, at BC and BU, as huh. well as Gordon-Conwell. Wow. So it was it was fun, yeah. So okay, I, so now this is segue. I, uh, <laughs> this is way kind of outside of our script. So th- let's go down this path a little bit. So you grew up conservative. You went to... Uh, a seminary that really believed in kind of the literal interpretation of the Bible. 
have you did you go down that path? Were you a literalist or were you a liberal and straight away from that? What what does that path look like? I, I wouldn't say I grew up conservative. I grew up in Texas where the culture was conservative. Okay. But I grew up in Disciples, which is not pretty liberal. It's a pretty liberal denomination. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so I found myself at Gordon Conwell very uh almost surprised. I had I had people coming up to me before I preached telling me I was going to hell if I Because you're a woman and yes. you and you're going to go to hell cuz you were preaching cuz I was wow. going to take the pulpit. You know, my response was, "Gee, I feel so excited to get to preach now." Yeah. PCUSA, were you always P- did you think you were going to be PCUSA, which by the way for those of you who don't know, that's Presbyterian, Presbyterian Church USA. Did were you, did you have your sights on PCUSA? No, when I was back in Wichita, I started attending a very spiritual reason of Presbyterian churches because they had a huge singles group, huh. and they had 150 singles. Wow. That was the entire reason I started going. But I, I liked the fact that they were they were invested in process, mm-hmm. and I don't think I realized the church was as conservative as it was. It's no longer part of the PCUSA um, until later, but it was it was a piece I. I didn't. I really didn't go out intending that. I would say seminary helped shape that. We we have more Presbyterian students at Gordon Conwell wow. at the time than some of our denominational seminaries. So help me. I'm trying to put the framework on this. Uh, was the PCUSA ordaining women at this time? Oh yeah. Okay. Because yeah, yeah. that was back in the 50s or the 60s that they were ordaining women. We ordained women. It's been. We hit our 50 year mark. So we've we've gone beyond that. Um, can't remember the date that we have been ordaining women. So the PCUSA has been one of the front runners to do that. Because I remember, so I went to seminary in 1981. I had just yeah. graduated from Little Whitworth College in Spokane. And I, I still remember it was fresh enough that the women who were involved in ministry were really proud mm-hmm. of their calling, that it was new enough that that it wasn't just an ordinary thing, that it was a huge thing for women to be in ministry. Mm-hmm. And even at, I went to San Francisco Theological mm-hmm. Seminary, one of the most liberal places on the planet. And if for them, even then, it was it was, it was a powerful a thing to be ordaining women in the PCUSA. So, so you're never a literalist. You're always kind of a liberal at heart. Mm-hmm. Do you consider yourself still a progressive, oh, middle-of-the-road yes. liberal? Where do you put yourself? No, I'm a progressive. Progressive. My, my doctorate's from, from San Francisco. Oh, Reverend FTS. Doctor. I should have introduced no, no. you as Reverend <laughs> Doctor. Oh, but, my gosh. So you got your doctor from SFTS. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're sisters and brothers yes, here. Yes, yeah, colleagues there. What did you study for your doctorate? It was a it was a generalized doctorate, but my my dissertation focus was on um, emotional readiness for ministry. So it was really oh, wow. looking at our psychological uh-huh. preparedness for uh-huh. serving in ministry. Yeah. Wow, I remember taking those battery of exams. I was, I think I was like nineteen when mm-hmm. I started taking those exams. I remember being so freaked out taking the MM was it the MMPI? Mm-hmm. You know, some of those Minnesota multiphasic something or rather. I remember having to take all those exams. So do we still do that in, in the PCUSA? Well, we had a we had a standard, and then we, we changed things to it got really loosey-goosey. And that was what my doctorate was about, was because depending on the presbytery, some might just have somebody meet with a, a person who is a pastoral counselor for a few hours, and they make a determination. Oh, so wow. they didn't even do the exams. No personality test? So I really I really did a whole um, exhaustive research, not only of all of our presbyteries and our, our committees on preparation for ministry, of what was required, but also COMs, our committee on ministry, of how many issues surfaced 
because there was there was challenges that were being faced that were not addressed or the person wasn't given skills right. to be able to address. Right. Also looked at other denominations. Wow. And I would say compared to the other denominations, we were low oh, really? of our expectations. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow, because I remember when I was back in the 80s, there was it a was. huge undercare process. I mm-hmm. mean, they literally held me by the hand almost around the waist as they walked me through the whole process and the testing and the shadowing and everything. And I was just in college. I remember having to do that. Well, and I would say our, our preparation process is still strong that way. It just was for whatever reason, things got changed in the book of order. It's changed back mm-hmm. to where it's more clear what on the, um, the psychological, the mental health status and being able to support somebody. Okay, good. Well, let's let's kind of truck on. You know, one of the things Steve, that I uh, appreciate you is that you kind of you have a, a big vision uh, for the Presbytery of Denver and for the PCOSA. I wanted you to talk about places of hope that you see in the Presbyterian Church because you know, as far as the statistical reports, it keeps on coming down every year that we're losing more and more members, but yet. I kind of feel hopeful about the denomination. What do you see? What gives you hope about the PCOSA as a denomination, as a national denomination? Well, a, a couple of things is is first an awareness that the, the de- decline is not just the PCOSA. It is every single right. denomination right. except for the for Catholics. Huh. And Catholics showed a growth because of the immigration influx. Right. But even the evangelicals, even everybody across the board showed radical decline. It wasn't something that um, surprised us. We were taught in seminary, the church you are going into will not be the church that you leave with. Because we saw it happening in, in Europe, we saw it happening in, right. in Great Britain. Right. And so when I look at that, I, I don't know. I see that as an invitation that we've been invited to and what they're calling of the Second Reformation is what we saw happening in Europe. It started replicating here in the United States of are we going to be a denomination, a church, even the big church see right. that we just have our ministries that are focused and insular on ourselves? Right. Or are we really changing and adapting to asking big questions of people's faith, doing what you do here? Um, with with Cowboy Jesus, with the with your congregation, um, Cowboy Jesus, of asking those missional questions of where's the need and who are we called to be in this world in 2023, not just who we were called to be in 1970, and and I think that to me is pivotal, is if we're still living into that old model and saying why aren't people showing up. Why isn't the pastor waving a wand that says children will will produce? That model is the only one that can exist. So with all that being said, I I really find hope in our new worshiping communities. So so say a little bit about what's a new worshiping community. New worshiping communities were were begun in the PCUSA. I want to say it's been now 10 years. They've hit their their -hmm. anniversary. The PCUSA starts seeing this happening and saying we need to be seeding and fueling new innovative ways of, of worship and of gathering people in communities. They're not as doctrinally tied. Right. So it's not about the restrictions or the structure as much as it is, how are we meeting people where they're at and asking big questions about God and, and, and walking with them in that process? And I would say initially it took a little bit to get launched. Um, we learned a lot of lessons. We had some here in Denver. Right. Some were right. very successful and right. others, you know, they, they kind of had a, 
they had a blip and then they kind of right. went away. Right. But right now, the PCUSA, if we, we don't count our new worshiping community membership, if we did, we would have shown growth in the last three years. Wow. Isn't that exciting? It I, is. You know, it's really f- I love the new worshiping community concept because I think it has brought forth a, a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. It's cut loose people's creativity. You know, we're doing a, um, we're working with a Grace Press and New Hope Press in Castle Rock on a virtual community called mm-hmm. Between. I don't know if you've heard about Between. I have. I have. It's exciting. Yeah, we're really excited to kind of see where it goes. Virtual church. Yes. How do you create a dynamic, integrative community? Uh, place where people can come in the middle of the weekend. Like I just had a conversation with a, a kind of a, a side member of Columbine. He lives in Texas and he's looking for a progressive faith community and can't find it. So it's like, can between become a place where somebody as far flung as Texas or even around the world, can they find a progressive community to participate mm-hmm. in? I think that's what the, these alternative worship, uh, opportunities provide i think it is so exciting which one like in denver that you that comes to mind that you're really curious about or you find fun well i've had i've had the joy of joining um i was asked before accepting this position i was asked to preach at ebenezer um presbyterian church which is a um uh, 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 Ghanaian church. Yeah. So some of our our new worshiping communities are Ghanaian or excuse me the immigrant communities that come together wow and what a church, what a community. They are amazing. And the service is almost entirely in Twi, except for the sermon. And, and you know, I don't speak Twi. I learned a couple of words that they would question that I really learned them because they always corrected me <laughs> on them. But, but um, filled with joy and life and coming together yeah. culturally, it was exciting. But the fun thing is, is there's the, the immigrant communities that are coming together. There's also these very creative, you know, we have, um, uh, um, I'm trying to think, Stoked Life, which is a paddleboard ministry. Okay, I just did a double take. Oh, it's yes, really funny. Yes. I was checking the computer screen to make sure we're recording right. Say that again. A it's a pa- paddleboard ministry. So they they engage people as they come in to to rent paddleboards, or they go to places that need paddleboards, like Highlands Camp or other places. And again, it's an opportunity to start to engage people in these conversations. How creative exactly. is that? Exactly. And Presbytery, Denver Presbytery sponsors that? So they're one of the new worshiping communities. That is far yeah. out. There's there's just some really exciting. And and I want to say, because sometimes we get into that polarity of the, the either or. Right. So, oh my gosh, new worshiping communities, that's the answer we need to abandon our churches. And it's right. like, no. Right. It's a both and. Right. They support and nourish each other, you right. know, between between the experience and the foundation that a congregation brings to this innovative, creative, uh, exciting adaptability right. that our new worshiping communities have. So there's there's place for both. You and, know, when I look at the new worshiping communities, I kind of see them as the um, research, the R and D of yes. a of a of an organization. You know, any big kind of business or technological institute, it has to have a research and development, an R&D, mm-hmm. to bring in new ideas for the main body, if you will, of the mm-hmm. business. So I see the new worshiping communities as the R&D of, well, just as the Denver Presbytery. Maybe it's for the whole denomination, but 
these new creative things that people are doing that then we can incorporate those of us who are in kind of in brick and mortar places to breathe life into us. I see it as an exciting kind of both and that you're talking about. The, the church is, is both of these. It, it is. We had an opportunity in a different presbytery where I served in Kansas City. We had a, a new worshiping community. It's called the Open Table. Mm-hmm. They came together with their primary value was about anti-racism. Mm. Now, as the denomination started exploring um, racism, anti-racism, looking at the issues that we continue and will continue for years looking at, the open table became a resource. So as we we actually passed a requirement that all pastoral leaders take anti-racism training, wow. the open table became those who were teaching us wow. the anti-racism training. So it's wow. seeing that both and. Yeah. The challenge is, is new worshiping communities are exploding to the place we haven't we haven't pivoted our infrastructure to recognize and own. So our membership isn't counted with them. Oh, we, we don't count no, the membership. Yet. We still just count when we call members, we call the brick and mortar members right. of a, or members of a brick and mortar place. Exactly. Those are the members of the PCOSC. We're not counting these. So we're wow. not counting them. So, so that's where the growth area comes. Yeah. Um, their voice, they have a voice at Presbytery, but they don't have a vote unless they're a minister of word and sacrament because they don't have a session. They don't have a council. And so that was an overture that, that, that I was one of the co-writers to, to General Assembly that passed and is coming back to do a task force to look at ordination, to look at um, with the influx of our immigrant communities, our new worshiping communities, we have to pivot. We have oh, to have our do. structure adapt to be inclusive. Right. You know, I think a lot of the things that are brick and mortar concepts as far as a a local church has got to change. Yeah, we have to change some of these structures because, or we're just going to go the way of the dinosaur and die. Yeah, we have to become flexible, dynamic. Look at new what it means to do church, what it means to be ordained, mm-hmm. what does it mean to have a governing body like a session. All of that has got to change because it's if we just keep it the way it is, we're just arranging deck chairs on the Titanic and nothing, and we're just going to go down. We have to breathe new life. Exactly. But I think we do bring wisdom that can't be just totally ignored. It's right. gleaning the gifts that. that are there. Right. And that, that to me is how they fuel and subsidize and support each other. Right. Um, you and I are of an age that I, I, I think you're still, I'm, I'm in the end of the boomer piece. Yeah, so am I. Anybody ever say, okay, boomer to you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. All me the too. time. All the time. And, and sometimes it's our Gen X and, and, and our, you know, the, the, the ones who bring these creative ideas which I fully embrace. I'm excited they're stepping into leadership. And I don't believe the way you bring change is to totally demolish what was. There's got to be a wisdom shared. There's got to be an awareness that we each bring gifts to the table. And I think that's where it feels successful. Um, Some churches are finding life and vitality by... Whose phone is that? Hold on a second. That is my (laughs) phone. My computer is accepting a phone call. Let me decline that. Okay, there's a first time for everything. <laughs> Dee was trying to show me how to turn off my notifications on my computer. We stopped the computer. Everything went dead. So we're picking it back up. 
Do you, I can't even remember where we were. Well, we were talking about that balance of, of established church, brick-and-mortar congregations right, right, and right, new right, worshiping right. communities. Um, Nikki Collins, who's the director for 1001 New Worshiping Communities, tells a story about a church in San Gabriel, San Fernando. It's an amazing story of a church that really was looking at it's time to close. They had gotten down to just a handful of members. They didn't have the energy to do anything, and they really revaluated what is it we feel called to do in our last stages, almost to a hospice place. And they looked in their neighborhood and they saw there were a lot of kids that used their parking lot for skating. And so they turned, they pivoted, they realized we're going to turn our complete attention to building a skate park for these wow. kids. They did. Wow. How cool is that? All of a sudden, and that was their intention was as we close, this will be the ministry we'll leave here. All of a sudden, they were inundated with kids and then with parents who had needs that they could address, that they could wow. respond to. This little church grew not only that new worshiping community, they have five now that that's who wow. they service and support, and they, they've become alive again. Oh, wow. Because so they were willing to pivot. Yeah. God using them in ways that they had no idea what what was going to be happening. Something huge and creative happens. That exactly. is fantastic. And it was that shift from insular of this is for us to gather only for our needs, only for us to feel comfortable to what can we do that's going to make a difference. And that's the other, you asked about hope, and I want to, I want to return to that. That's the other place of hope I feel in our denomination. Um, Matthew 25, to me, has shifted this. Okay, wait, wait. Matthew oh. 25, let's let everybody okay. know. What is a Matthew 25 community? Matthew 25 had, came out of the Presbyterian Mission Agency, and it was recognizing Jesus' command, in, and look it up, it's a great text, but it's, it's, it's actions that look at eradicating systemic poverty, eliminating um, racism within the structure, and the third is, is congregational vitality. And they're all seen as equal. There are, there are three legs to a stool, so they depend on each other because they all, they all inform each other. Mm-hmm. But it was, a, it was a, a pledge almost encouraged by congregations to step in and say, hey, we do this. It's not an event. It's not just one activity. It's, this is how we're choosing to live. And I think what's exciting about it is the relevancy because, let's face it, PCUSA spent 40 years talking about LGBTQIA plus rights. Right. And right. we wrung our hands and we were so afraid we were going right. to lose members. We were so afraid we were going right. to offend people, which we all were doing by not acting. Right. But when we finally made a decision of this is who we feel called to be and, and because of our study of God's right. word. Right. Right. It lifted from us that fearfulness to step in and say, as a church, as a denomination, we live into these values. And that, to me, we became relevant again. Right. Because all the wrestling before, to me, we were, it was insular. And it was like, no, we're choosing to live and be a witness in our communities of who God has called us to be. Right. Yeah, you know, um, so that's great news. That's so hopeful as far as new worshiping communities and the R&D of the church, I think it is such good news. I love what it's doing here in the Presbytery of Denver. I want to pivot because you brought up something that's really important to me, and that is the whole LGBTQI mm-hmm. part of the of the PCUSA. And what it means to me personally, what it means to my listeners of this podcast, what it means to Columbine United Church, you know, um, 
I never, ever thought I'd see the day where the Presbyterian Church would ordain LGBTQI people, let alone bless their marriages. You know, there was such a huge part of my early life as a kid in high school. My best friend was gay. In college, I had gay friends. In seminary, mm-hmm. SFTS was full of trans people, people all over the gender spectrum. And then you jump into the PCOSA, and it was like closed door. And so you spend your whole career trying to change things, and I thought it would never. And then it's like it did. Talk to me about your experience with all that. Well, I, I like yourself, I had several friends who were lesbians, several gay men that I knew through the years that were dear, dear friends of mine. Um, I would say where it really shifted for me was a massage therapist in Northampton, <laughs> Massachusetts. I found out she was a member of, of a church, a Presbyterian church at the time. So I was in seminary and she was a lesbian. <laughs> and this woman provided for me such great spiritual direction. She was wise as everything. But at one point she said, you know, I never could be an elder in my wow. church. Wow. And that landed with me so strong. And I, I still, to this day, I've, I've been an advocate. Um, I served a church at Brentwood, and I came across a colleague there who was ordained PCUSA. She was called to West Hollywood. She and um, her colleague, she was an out lesbian, he was an out, out gay man, um, during the days of AIDS. So they buried hundreds of wow. people. And the PCUSA affirmed their ministry. Wow. But then we shifted. And we put, we put what was it, Amendment A or Amendment yeah. B? Yeah. And and Do so, you remember what those words for the listeners? I'm trying to remember the exact wording of them. Chastity and singleness and oh, fidelity and right. marriage. Which my argument was, and I always to this day, I was like, I didn't take a vow of celibacy as a right. single person. I right. mean, it, it was set up to almost oh, it was set I up to prevent I forgotten about all that. Yeah. yeah. And it, it really was to keep out and to, to restrict. So here was this colleague of mine who attended Brentwood who said, I left West Hollywood and I couldn't take another job. So to watch a denomination that affirmed and called who she was as she was and now turn their back, you know, to me made a radical difference. So I've, I've been part of that voice for many, many years. I, I will say it was a, it was an honor to me in Colorado when marriage equality passed. Right. Um, I was asked to speak on the on the steps of the federal building by Governor Higginlooper. Wow. To 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 share this is a day we celebrate. Wow. Because that's cool. When we do biblical studies of those texts, it doesn't hold water to when we just kind of pluck and pluck and choose right. whichever verses right. we think are. Um, support our case. Right. Um, there's so much biblical scholarship that's like, folks, this is about our comfort level or our discomfort level, not not something that scripture has in place. Right. Yeah. So uh, what was the effect that you saw, you, you kind of alluded to, let me go back to that, you saw in the denomination, because everybody was terrified, we're going to split in two. Yeah. And there was a group that left. What, did, what was your insight or your take on how it affected the whole denomination when we did it? Well, you know, yes, we lost members, but the reality was, friends, we lost members before that because right. we wouldn't choose. I so agree. Including the woman that I served with yeah. that I, I deeply respect and honor. They went to another denomination. Right. I just think the effect was, and you know, it, it just took so much energy and time, and there was a lack of capacity to see people in the midst of this. It was a philosophical debate, and, and that to me, all of a sudden, you're not even 
how do you do ministry without seeing people before you that your comments are degrading and and making value statements right. that somehow they're not loved or they're not right. worthy? Right. I, I just think we got caught in numbers and budgets and right. wanting to be, you know, the biggest denomination right. and all that instead of really what is God calling us to at this time? Yeah, that's what I really felt at Columbine, a sense of call to do this. So like mm-hmm. when we it became an issue for Columbine mm, 15, maybe even 20 years ago when we started doing the work. And uh, people were afraid we're going to lose members. If we lose members, we're going to lose money. If we lose money, we're going to go in the tank. And it's like it became, who cares? This yeah. is what we're supposed to be doing. We're going to do the work. Whoever leaves, leaves. And they left. We lost about 100 people and about $100,000. And everybody did a collective, oh, they were freaking out. But then, but then the water settled and people started coming to the church because we had taken the stands that we had taken. I think the same thing is with the Peace USA. It's really interesting. The United Methodist, uh, I had my district superintendent on the, the podcast a couple episodes ago, and she was talking about how the United Methodist Church is really kind of stymied right now because the bulk of the church wants to go on, and yet there's this small, conservative little part that is holding back the whole denomination. It's like, Please make a decision. Go forward. And that's when I was so relieved that the, when the PCUSA finally mm-hmm. did it, it's like, okay, the people who have to leave can leave. But the yeah. rest of us, we're going to continue on doing the ministry that we feel God has called us to do. Well, and, and I, I had hoped the Methodist Church would learn from the PCUSA. Right. We, we took so long to decide. Right. And... That to me, the values of what was keeping us from making a decision were the fear that was involved there instead of being able to say, you know what, we really, we're, we are different here. Right. And, and that's okay. It's okay for y'all to go another direction right. that we're going. That's what I, I, I really felt when people were angry and upset that we we're going this direction. And they said, we're going to leave the church. I said, well, then God bless you on mm-hmm. your journey because I'm not turning back. Yeah. We're not turning back. We're going in, in mm-hmm. this direction. So if you can't be a part, God bless you. Go find another church. I mean, it sounded kind of cold at the time, but it's like, no, we're going we're in this direction. Yes. We're going because God has called us to go in this direction. And that's that to me is the energy, the compelling energy behind being a disciple, being someone who is a faith following, uh, you know, listening, loving Jesus to say, I feel led in this direction. And, and when, we, when we hesitate, when we pull back and go, oh, but somebody else is going to be offended by that, I think we get ourselves in a pickle. Right. Yeah. So kind of in this whole direction, um, one of the things that – and I think, that, I think Congress has already kind of short-circuited it. Mm-hmm. But like when the Supreme Court was talking about – or kind of rumors that the Supreme Court was going to take away our ability to, to – they were going to take away gay marriage rights. How would the PCUFA have responded to when a the ruling court in the United States outlaw something that we hold dear? How does a denomination respond to something like that? Well, for, for any issue, but specifically for that, um, we have an Office of Public Witness. That's Jimmy Hawkins, and it's out of the OGA. What's OGA? And um, OGA is the Office of General Assembly. Thank okay. you. I always forget our acronym, yeah. so I appreciate it. Um, and and they are the ears and feet, and they also are the voice of of, of of our denomination 
with the congressional leaders. So they are there echoing when many times, I would say the news media sensationalizes and only gets the polarities of extreme of what they respond to as this is the voice of the church. And it's not. The mainline denominations, which are all very liberal, don't seem to have uh, the capacity because they support these issues. They support uh, they support LGBTQ rights. They support um, the immigration issues that are coming before us because that is part of our belief, of our right. understanding of Scripture. And so there's a voice that's there. The denomination I don't think would have abandoned by any means. Um, I think they would have figured out a way to work within that we continue to to advocate and continue. The, the PCUSA supported the ordination, I believe, in 2010. Wow. So for 13, yeah. 13 years yeah. now, yeah. and um, there was just there was a lot of conversation with mid-council leaders and denominational leaders when that was even being discussed of, okay, so they choose to do that. We still get to be who we are and declare what right. we declare. Right. And so, so I, I didn't really see that as having an impact for us as a denomination as much as it did an impact for our, our outreach to how that must have felt right. for anyone um, and, and and just to be honest, there is a lot of hate that has grown in reaction in our world against LGBTQI. Oh, yeah. I mean, we don't oh, have to look yeah. hard to no, see what's happening no, no. and to, to draw those lines. And so, again, how do we respond? How do we reach out and educate but also speak out that this is wrong? Right. Never are hate crimes acceptable. Right. Yeah. So, so kind of in the same vein— um, but switching topics a little bit, let's talk about abortion mm-hmm. and the Supreme Court because, you know, part of my ministry, I've always been in, involved with Planned Parenthood, Planned mm-hmm. Parenthood teaching. I've had Planned Parenthood come to Columbine to offer classes, birth control clinics, all different kinds of things. What we worked with Planned Parenthood, so we've always been pro uh, pro choice, pro women's rights, pro women's rights to choose what happens for their own reproductive rights and then and so you almost get to the point where you like take it for granted right Right. we we all took a row for granted and then suddenly the supreme court comes in and as we all know does away with it how does because the presbyterian church has always been really pro choice pro woman pro a woman's right to choose how does the presbytery the PCUSA respond to something like that. So you're right on. For 40 years, the Presbyterian Church has supported uh, a legal right to abortion. I, I wrote this down so I wouldn't forget it. From 1983, no law or decision should limit access to abortion or counseling. Wow. That's the PCUSA stand, and they have stood firmly around that. Um, there have been times, and again, some of this is from the government influence. Some of it is from our more conservative churches influence. Some of it is the wedding of those two groups. Um, when I was at Wichita, I went back to serve a church. And in our in our congregation, we had nurses that served with Dr. Was it Tiller? I think it was Tiller mm-hmm. who did the third term right. abortions. Right. Um, right. Again, some of this is just plain ignorance because he was advertised as doing third term just right. recklessly and no matter what. He only did third term if the mother's life was in danger, oh. and that was that was accept, you know that was known. But yet again, fear right. fuels people just right. deciding. If you remember, he he was assassinated. Yeah, I'll never forget um, that. So there's a 
there's such a contradiction there. But the church there, we did not sign on to. There were two churches in the whole city of Wichita that did not sign on to we are pro-life. And Grace Presbyterian was one, and a Lutheran church down the road was another. They had protests. um, We had had threats. Mm. And so we had undercover Secret Service officers in our church. Wow. And I just, I look at that. Talk about a prophetic stand. Good for you. Congratulations. Well, it's a piece, and that's what I believe the Peace USA has been. Right. Yes, it has scared many women because, again, a misogynistic view is being imposed, a patriarchal view is, is being reclaimed. And yet... There's, there's also the inconsistency, because if you look at the, the logic of why it's being imposed, it doesn't flow to any issue around men, that, that now right. the government's going to, right. to declare what you can do or not do with your body. Right. And, and it, you know, it flowed in so many ways. But the PCUSA, when, when Roe v. Wade was shifting, the, the chatter, the conversation among Presbytery leaders really was, okay, states that have taken a stand, like Colorado, how do we support those who are in states who have not? Right. And um, I mean, it's like, just interrupt. It's like, I'm so grateful I live in Colorado. Yeah. So go ahead. Fin- fin- so we that. started talking about, do we do a, a, a underground transition system for people right. to come? Great. Lodging needed. Um, do we order lots yeah. of plan Bs to have access to them? You know, and again, some of that was based on f- uh, Thank fear. Thank goodness we live but, in Colorado. But it really was talking to the surrounding states. Um, it was looking at churches. Can they use their religious, um, what we use now for immigration of sanctuary? Could that be used yeah. as also a, a philosophy around wow. playing? What a pay, great you know, concept around, that yeah, is. Yeah. I never even thought about that. So so the conversations were happening, um, and, and I think they still will continue. I, I think it's a, a deep concern for women. Because it, it took a step back. All of a sudden, we we don't have the rights that we had to our bodies that we've had for years, and we took for granted. Yeah. So. Yeah. Okay. Another shift. Another shift. Um, this is a huge for me personally because of my involvement at Columbine High School, but school shootings, mass shootings, public shootings. Uh, last year in 2022, there were over 600 mass shootings, which is just astronomical. Thousands of people lost their life. Thousands of people injured. How? What does the PCUSA respond to the issue of gun violence in our culture? Is there any type of prophetic statements you or moves you're seeing coming out of the PCUSA? Yeah, there's actually there was a book. Um, I'm trying to remember his name. Um, it was about addictions to to guns that he really. Um, I can't even remember the book's name. It's a great book. Um, so. I apologize, I can't remember that, yeah. Um, but we looked at uh, also standing on holy ground. Many of our, um, we came out with a video several years ago. It was a study video by the denomination. It was called Trigger. We showed it here in Denver Presbytery uh-huh. Uh-huh. that really looked at the roles of gun, the role of gun rights, but also the impact of accessibility and how easily accessible it is. The, the, the trigger's being redone. And so it's really being, Gundamentalism was the name oh. of the book. What is it? Let's say that again. Gun, Gundamentalism. Gundamentalism? Gundamentalism. Oh, Gundamentalism. So okay. it, it really is looking at, we have cultivated an addiction, if not mm. a, a belief system around guns. Um, in the denomination, in the presbytery here, 
we're seeing a huge, we, we have a relationship with Guns to Gardens. Mm-hmm. And you y'all, know, I know, y'all are We're going to do Guns and Gardens tools. I'm excited yes, about that. Y'all are hosting that. And again, this is a bring guns in to have them made into garden tools. So it's it's seen on several levels the denomination is addressing it. Definitely on a progressional level in ways we can do like the Office of Public Witness, mm-hmm. but also on the local level of education, of, of really helping people to under, to make these uh, connections of why these matter. Uh, guns and gun violence is actually considered part of Matthew 25. It's the next layer they're bringing in this year. Uh-huh. And so that's a whole other place it's showing up at. Um, but yes... You know, you and I led that how many years yeah. ago in, yeah. it was after Columbine and it was right. after the Aurora shooting and we led with pastors, what are we missing? Right. And Okay. That's right. Yeah. I yeah. completely forgot about that. Because we That was at your church, right? It was. Yeah. And it was a piece of asking folks, what's going on here? Um, sadly, it's continued and it's just, it's, it's just continued exponentially. I, and I, you know, there's so many layers of it. And I think that's the piece is when we start to look for a simplex answer, you know, we, we, we actually diminish the impact it's had on our society. We have to look at the many different layers of how this is impacting us. Right. Right. Cool. Cool. You know, one of the things we've talked all kinds of stuff about the denomination, but one of the things that I think makes you such a, an excellent leader of the Denver Presbytery is that you're kind of a pastor at heart. You, uh, you were pastor of a church before you become a kind of a denominational executive. What would you say to pastors today who are either in a brick-and-mortar position and they're wondering, my, ch- my church is dying, people aren't coming to church? What do you say to pastors in those situations? What do you say to, to pastors who are in the more creative, alternative type of ministries? What is your guidance to pastors today in this kind of crazy environment to be a pastor in today. What would you say to them? Well, and you add in COVID. Oh, yeah, COVID. Yeah, (laughs) which has had a radical impact. COVID. Um, Pastors across the board have all been leaving. I mean, it's a huge... Have they been leaving? It's a huge leaving of pastors as a result of COVID. No kidding. I Um, had no... They're leaving because... They've got COVID. They got burned out from COVID. Their churches got burned out of COVID, all of the above. Yes, and their churches wanted them to go back when it wasn't safe to go oh, back. Oh, yeah, and, right, right. And it required, people didn't realize how much it required. I mean, there was like a meme that said, you know, overnight I became a televangelist. Um, <laughs> pastors had to pivot yeah. in a radical way right. to address COVID and yeah, to address sure and to build that. And what y'all's new worshiping community is, is that was the gift of COVID was we still can find connection. Right. Um, But we have to be very creative in how we do it. My, my advice to pastors is always care for yourself. Uh Um, uh, A dear colleague of mine when I was at Montview was John Kuzma. Uh And John used to always say, you know, don't expect mother church to take care of you. She will eat you up and spit you out. Right. And it was a Latin phrase, but the the piece is, the premise is, we have to be intentional to take care of ourselves. Right. And that means finding places that our our hearts soar, our soul soar, where we feel energized, not just doing it out of a sacrificial nature, because we will deplete and we will, we will, we will dry up and fall off. So that's, that's the piece is we, we have to see our self-care is not selfish. It's actually enabling us to serve from a full place for all the people we serve. Um, another, I, I feel with pastors, 
is being themselves, is recognizing God has created them exactly as they are, and to own that instead of trying to be either the savior for the church or to be the hero or to be to match everybody else's expectations. Right. It's to really just own who you are and live into that. Uh, God doesn't make mistakes when God calls, and I think we, we actually dismiss the call when we try to become the next person. Yeah. Cool. Dee, this has been a wonderful conversation. Getting to know you more, getting to talk about the Presbyterian Church. You know, um, for a while, I was almost embarrassed to say that I was a Presbyterian. I started out being really proud of being a PCUSA pastor. And then for a while, when I saw what the PCUSA was doing, it's like I became embarrassed to say I was a PCUSA pastor. And now I'm back to a place where it's like, you know what? I'm pretty proud of who we are as a denomination and things that we're accomplishing. People like yourself and leadership, the new worshiping communities, Mm -hmm. the creativity that's happening, the social witness that Mm -hmm. we're having as a denomination. I think it's pretty cool. I think it's pretty cool. I think it's really, really hopeful. I think it's a hopeful thing. I think it's exciting. And and I think, again, that's energizing that we're into that. We're, We're actually living into who we say we are. Yeah. Well, friends, this is another episode of the Cowboy Jesus Podcast. I so appreciate your time listening. You can uh, read my blog, also called Cowboy Jesus. It is on my uh, website. It is on my Facebook page. It's on the Church's Columbine United Church's Facebook page. So a lot of different ways we connect. Again, I want to thank Columbine United Church for making this podcast. Possible.